Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns, Primal Endurance Podcast. We haven't rapped in a while, have we? How How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished in squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar, the ten dollar, founding father without a father, got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter, by fourteen, they placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves are being slaughtered and carted away, across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned. A man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain. Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to its brain. And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. Well, the word got around. They said, this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. This is name, man. Alexander Hamilton. All right, all right, we're getting it done, nice and long. Welcome back. We got some questions to address today, and I also want to uh, start out by just share some of the stuff that's on my mind, some of the recent doings uh, relating to my endurance activities. Uh, One of them is just further reflection on that Dave Scott podcast that aired on this channel recently. Search for it. It was wonderful. Of course, Dave Scott, the Ironman legend and uh, prominent coach, in the endurance sports scene, coached many world champion Hawaii Ironman champions in his own right. Uh, But Dave said some provocative stuff. He's been talking about this for a long time, and he's favoring this uh, brief introductions of high-intensity bouts during uh, frequent workouts throughout the week rather than, you know, just a distinct once or twice a week for your intervals or your time trials. So Dave made this characterization of blasting the cardiovascular system, giving it a nice flushing and the accordant uh, health benefits uh, that accrue from that, as well as the fitness benefits. So he's talking about uh, going out on your normal routine uh, endurance training run and uh, hitting it hard for 20 seconds at a time, maybe 10 times. Same thing on the bike, maybe for longer duration of a hard effort because it takes a while to wind up and it's less stressful cycling than running. So if you're doing uh, a minute hard and then getting some rest and then coming back hard and just getting that uh, that heart rate up there, the cardiovascular system uh, maximizing output for short duration so that the workout is not overly stressful and requiring a lot of recovery time. Um, it's a very compelling concept. Uh, I'm going out there and fooling around with it now a bit. So just the other day, I did my normal routine training run at uh, aerobic heart rate or below, but I uh, wanted to see uh, what kind of shape I'm in. So I went and ran uh, a mile at high speed, Uh, very embarrassed that the time was barely under six minutes because in the old days, that was my training pace. Um, So, gee, what happens after 20 years of uh, uh, backing off on hard training? You lose a little bit of fitness. Anyway, 
Um, it's a compelling concept because uh, when you're getting those brief explosive efforts, whether it's your uh, short duration strength training session or throwing in some accelerations into your baseline workouts, of course, you're getting that fitness training effect. But then on the other side of my brain, I'm uh, remembering my great day that I spent with Dr. Phil Maffetone in the Arizona desert, where he was emphatically reiterating the points that he's made for so long that endurance training is very stressful. It's in many ways counterproductive to uh, general health, especially the pegging of the heart rate up at the kind of hard intensity. And that's Dave Scott's quote, also warning against this chronic training pattern where you go kind of hard too frequently. So in Phil's vernacular, that would be exceeding your maximum aerobic heart rate, the 180 minus age formula, and getting into that no man's land or the black hole like we called it in primal endurance. So that's definitely very, very bad news. But uh, more from the Phil message is that um, there's a stress effect of everything that you do in training, especially when you uh, go anaerobic, and this requires recovery time, and it causes stress hormones to dump into the bloodstream, and so you can get yourself into an overtraining spiral by going hard too frequently, and especially by going kind of hard too frequently. People have interpreted this message to mean that you need to just go slow and jog all the time, and you will become a champion. Uh, so that's a misinterpretation of Phil's message. He's also uh, an advocate of high-intensity training, just in the proper framework, and especially with a lot of rest and, and balancing activities, especially regulating that aerobic training heart rate. Uh, and on Dave's side, I think he's a little more aggressive with uh, the liberal application of high-intensity efforts, especially those short ones, uh, which are uh, purported to not interfere with recovery time. Um, so my feeling is this is really a place where the individuality comes in and what works best for you. Um, if you're not part of Dave's training group in Boulder, you can't, uh, he, he can't make an evaluation of what's the best workouts for you this week. Um, same with if you're not hanging out with Phil uh, out in the desert and helping him with his, uh, his son cooker and making sure his beans are ready uh, when it's 108 in the afternoon outside of Tucson where he lives. So it's all on you. And I want to express some uh, big picture principles, uh, just reiterating the message of primal endurance that we, we have to minimize that stress of training because there's so many other forms of stress in modern life. And training is yet another one, uh, even if you're uh, adhering to all the rules and being really good monitoring your heart rate, um, you really can err on the, um, on the side of uh, too much rest and, and too much recovery uh, it's much better than uh, erring on the side of overtraining, which is just absolutely destructive to your health and your performance. So that's the first thing is err on the side of caution. That's particularly important when we're talking about uh, this 180 minus age heart rate. We spent so much time and energy, Lindsay Taylor and I, looking on Facebook and engaging with endurance athletes who are in a roundabout way or a direct way asking for permission to squeeze a few more beats out of their calculation for whatever reason. We had that controversy going with Peter Defty where he's touting something called modified math method where you can add up to 20 beats to your aerobic heart rate if you're fat adapted. And this is now uh, looking like um, uh, an ill-advised and unsupported strategy. So the 180 minus age still rules all as it has been for decades um, since the big guys started implementing it and winning races, Mike Pig, Mark Allen, the early people that Phil worked with and carrying forward to the many, many athletes that have uh, had longevity and consistency by virtue of taking care of their bodies. 
however, the benefits of, you know, explosive exercise and brief high intensity efforts are, you know, well validated now. We're now in the age of uh, very specific and scientifically uh, guided training and people are going faster than ever in uh, various uh, endurance sports. So uh, things are working really well on that end. And what I see is probably uh, more attention to flexibility, mobility, uh, strength, and explosive power in today's uh, long-distance endurance athlete than in the old days when it really was all about mileage for a long time and just being out there all day and getting fit in that manner, which was uh, fraught with uh, high risk as well. So today we've kind of turned the pendulum the other direction where people are doing these focus workouts in the gym that are designed to have direct application to endurance goals, uh, jumping up and down off the uh, elevated box, is simulating the impact trauma that happens uh, when your muscles are placed under load for the first 20 miles of the marathon and you still have six more miles to go. So I'm a big fan, big proponent of all that, but I feel like in general, uh, all of us in the endurance scene have a tendency to err on the side of excess rather than the side of minimum. So I'm totally respecting what Dave has to say and realizing that I need to go out there and blow out my cardiovascular system perhaps a little more frequently than I have been when I've uh, been content to uh, jog, 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 and then go do a sprint workout once every 10 days. Because that kind of becomes difficult to recover from because I have no semblance of sprinting until I do the actual workout. The workout's pretty tough. Of course, on workout day, you're going to feel great. You're pumped up. You're at the track. Uh, you're, you're focused, you want to accomplish something, you want to time yourself, whatever. So you're going to get the job done, but then how's your recovery going to look if all you do besides that is jog? So I do think there's a place for a strategic implementation of drills, uh, things that are uh, strenuous. You can see a lot of suggestions uh, in that section of the primal endurance coursework uh, under the um, under the sprinting and strength training chapter. And gosh, I think there's more videos on that specific topic, more more volume of videos than anything else, because I, I did take you through all kinds of running drills and sprint preparations and technique instruction because it's so important and there's so much to say there and it's a, it's a big uh, popular subject of mine. So um, my report is that I've been doing uh, more introduction of brief high explosive efforts outside of, let's say, formal structured workouts. So when I go to the park, uh, visiting my parents in Los Angeles and taking their dog to the park every morning. It's a half a mile circuit around the park. I jog there a little over a mile at aerobic heart rate. But then when I'm in the park, my first objective is to complete 100 decline Spider-Man push-ups, the most difficult push-up known to mankind. Look on YouTube, uh, search for Brad Kern's decline Spider-Man push-up. You'll see what I'm talking about. But they have these park benches strategically located uh, throughout the park and so I'll do these in sets of usually 40 and then 30 and then 20 and then 20 more, getting me to 110. But I can't leave the park until I hit at least 100 of these strenuous push-ups. And in between the push-ups, as I'm going along the circuit, I'm doing an assortment of uh, sprinting drills that are actually quite strenuous, even though I'm moving slowly. So I'm doing high knees, I'm doing backward strides, I'm doing the hamstring kickouts, probably the toughest one of all. And so my heart rate is elevated uh, for a, a lot of the time that I'm at the park, and it doesn't feel like a uh, distinct uh, formal workout, 
but I'm getting in a little bit of that uh, cardiovascular system blast and conditioning my muscles and joints for those occasions when I go do a proper sprint workout, which uh, some of my favorites are six times 100 meters or four times 200 meters, two times 200, four times 100, just uh, short and explosive stuff, uh, oftentimes paired with some high jump approaches. So those are really tough sessions. And these little frequent introductions, more frequent introductions of intensity are really helping me. I'd say that'd be the same for uh, most athletes. But again, um, back to Maffetone's uh, uh, assertions, that we strongly agree with. If you have a lousy aerobic base, you have so much room for improvement there just by improving your baseline conditioning and fat burning abilities by A, modifying your diet to cut out grains and sugars, high insulin producing foods, and B, just by slowing down and taking the time to get more and more competent to where you've established some baseline level of competency that warrants uh, occasional wind sprints or occasional punching it up a, a short hill on the bike. But if you're um, showing a lot of uh, aerobic deficiency, as Phil calls it, or anaerobic excess, oftentimes paired with that, in other words, you can hammer really well, but your heart rate is beeping when you're proceeding on a flat road at 17 miles an hour on your bike or 14 miles an hour or whatever standard is um, showing that you're not too aerobically fit, uh, best results will come when you uh, work that lower end and just build up a, a general improvement in aerobic conditioning. A lot of the questions come along this uh, along this topic. There's a guy named Todd from sunny Queensland, Australia, and he's a medical doctor, sedentary job, 47, a good athletic background, a lot of detail here. We like our questions to come in at under a thousand words because we have a lot to cover. So I'm going to skip through. Uh, let that be a lesson. Let that be a warning to everyone. <laughs> But no, I do like the detail. I just have to um, kind of cut to the chase a little bit. But I think his message here is that um, he doesn't have much time to train uh, per week, three to five hours a week for local fun runs. So he's finding that um, his uh, heart rate during training uh, is a little bit elevated above the aerobic maximum. Um, He's done well. He's had some good success and wondering if... um, he can improve in the times ahead. However, I find my math pace, which is heart rate 133, frustratingly slow, especially training in our local heat and humidity with summer approaching, uh, although I have seen some improvement over two months. So he makes a couple points. First, that it's frustratingly slow. Absolutely, it is because you're burning predominantly fat. You're at your highest fat burning heart rate um, and you're capable of going much faster while still maintaining Uh, pretty comfortable effort level, not straining and stressing like you are at anaerobic threshold. So you have a lot of beats above your aerobic heart rate uh, that don't feel too bad, but they're kicking you uh, out of maximum fat burning and into more and more glucose burning and a little bit of stress hormone production. Therefore, um, they're not contributing as well to your aerobic development. So frustratingly slow might be the uh, buzzwords to accept and embrace and realize that this is the path to Uh, improve performance when it's time to open up the throttle. And then once in a while, adding in those brief high-intensity sessions where you're conducting um, uh, a sprint workout or you're participating in a local event where the heart rate goes out the window, that answers some questions to people like, do I have to keep my heart rate uh, at this level when I'm doing a race? I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to get beat by everyone or do you want to go out there and do your best regardless of heart rate? So this is a training heart rate pace and it has minimal application to any race pace efforts except 
for the cool uh, grassroots research project that Maffetone and his associates are engaged in, which is to uh, generate a population base with um, reported marathon times versus their maximum aerobic function test times. And it's coming out to be a prediction that um, your marathon race pace is 15 seconds uh, faster than your aerobic function pace. So something to go off of if you're if you're into that and you're trying to wonder, um, you're wondering what kind of pace you might uh, take out at the marathon and be able to hold for the whole time. You can calculate that off of your uh, results from doing a shorter test at maximum aerobic heart rate. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about training volumes and time frames, uh, says Todd. Uh, required to see substantial aerobic fitness and pace gains with the math approach. I uh, wonder what you recommend for these midlife people competing well uh, with respect to high-intensity training uh, and mentioning a whole bunch of them here. So um, when it's time to go hard, you can go hard doing an assortment of different workouts. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, Todd mentions you know, full sprint sessions, uh, race-specific longer tempo runs, lactate threshold sessions, uh, etc. So when it's time to go anaerobic and push yourself up to the high levels, all these uh, different types of workouts have a training effect. Um, and unless you're going for the Olympics, there's probably not much different in the training effect for you to even worry about it. So anything fast works and will help uh, give you that bump in fitness level, that stimulation of uh, buffering lactate and all the things you need to do, process more oxygen, uh, be more explosive off the ground. All that stuff will give you good practice so that you don't have to worry about the specifics. And mainly, um, you know, building that base up, seeing some steady improvement over a couple months, and then throwing in some strategic uh, uh, high-intensity stuff, but in short doses with plenty of recovery time in between them, and taking downtime in between uh, the periods where you're focused on uh, throwing in high intensity. And when you are throwing in high intensity for this two to three week period coming up, uh, you greatly reduce volume. So you don't have that double stress of trying to maintain your weekly hours or your weekly mileage while you're throwing in high intensity stuff. Okay, just uh, reiterating the primal endurance principles, but um, I wanted to lead out with. Uh, the message of what I've been uh, thinking about and testing up. Another uh, questioner named Peter says, I'm an avid marathoner, sub four marathon PR. I know exactly how and when to train and all about math and periodization. Uh, One quandary I wonder about that no one really talks about is, uh, can you describe the proper taper? What kinds of things should we be doing physically and mentally as our race approaches? How should we approach the days and hours leading up to our race from a nutrition standpoint? Longer, slower workouts, shorter, faster workouts, abandon uh, stuff like the maximum sustained power strength workouts and keep it functional. What do I do? Peter, I think that's Peter Coffey. I feel like I've answered this before. It might have been writing Peter an email back. I don't know. Uh, I hope I didn't uh, repeat this, but um, that's a good question about tapering. And the general uh, suggestion for tapering is to uh, reduce volume and maintain intensity. So if you're coming up to uh, a big multi-sport event or a big running event of a half marathon or marathon distance, you definitely want to dial back your overall workout volume in the weeks leading up to the marathon. Uh, So you're you're taking shorter uh, routine or recovery runs. You're taking uh, time off of your long run or you're doing your final long run a month out from the marathon and then everything else is going to be shorter in duration. Um, I think people especially make this mistake 
that they, uh, you know, their mind's getting um, anxious. They're feeling a little bit of insecurity or wondering if they're fit enough to complete the marathon. So they go out there two weeks before a marathon and do a 22-mile run so they can uh, post it on Instagram and tell everyone, now I'm really ready because I just made it almost as far as the marathon. And I think in general, uh, general contention that this is a huge mistake for the average recreational participant to put out that much energy uh, in the last couple few weeks before the marathon. Your body does not need a dry run. This is not a dress rehearsal for the play Hamilton on Broadway where they want to go through the whole thing before the audience shows up in the seats. You can rise to the occasion on marathon race day without uh, that stuff, that junk still sitting in your legs from the long run that you did two weeks prior. So that's basically a way to burn off some nervous energy and possibly compromise your recovery and your final preparations in the final weeks leading up to the marathon because it does take a long time to recover from uh, the muscle damage and the, the general stress of doing a run that's near marathon length. Better in terms of many uh, tapering research people is, let's say, to go do a, uh, a fast uh, 10K race two weeks or three weeks before the marathon. So you're working that high end, you're done after six miles, you're home eating breakfast, resting, dunking in your cold tub, um, and it's much less risk than these long over-distance sessions where you're out there hours. Same for the uh, the ultra-run people, the Ironman people, um, the Western States folks that uh, uh, have you know trained out in Auburn. Um, they are known for doing these uh, all-day uh, weekend runs in the spring leading up to uh, the Western States in late June. And it's like, that's fine to try that and get your nutrition right and, and do an adventure that's going to really boost your confidence to be able to run 100 miles. So you go run 40 miles one time or go on 50 miles one time. But if you do it seven times, I'm telling you, it's unnecessary, it's overkill, and it's just for your fragile ego rather than your body. So these race simulation workouts are very, very important, but a little goes a long way. Okay, that's my, um, that's my admonition there. Our next question comes from a soccer referee. Uh, endurance is such a big component, as well as, you know, you got to have some sprint going too. A match has warm-up, they have 90 minutes of activity, I'm doing jogging, I'm doing full sprints, I'm running backwards. It's a tough workout to be a soccer referee. My question is, how does my situation fit with your primal endurance framework. Same for uh, asking on behalf of athletes for basketball, hockey, rugby, soccer. Would you recommend deviating away, deviating away from primal endurance? How should those of us who believe in and are interested in it uh, look at applying them to sports that aren't uh, traditional endurance events? That's a great question. I think that you need an endurance base to succeed in any sport. It's going to be more and more important when you're doing an ultramarathon run versus playing uh, a hockey game where it's more uh, start and stop and there's no uh, demand to continue for an hour without interruption. You're getting constant rest periods. But as we've seen from the great performances of uh, track and field athletes in short duration events and all the swimmers that compete in uh, events lasting only seconds or minutes, that endurance base is the first step toward acquiring uh, maximum competency. Now, do the NBA basketball players uh, go out there and run uh, 30 miles a week all summer preparing for the season? No, they don't. What they do instead is they do more sports-specific training where they're doing pickup games and they're jogging up and down the court and they're kind of getting uh, this nice endurance training effect interspersed with uh, brief high-intensity explosive efforts that are called for even during a pickup game. 
Um, however, I'm also going to contend that the major sport athletes, uh, the big heroes of uh, our time, are training in a rudimentary manner in comparison to some athletes in the more fringe sports that have become more sophisticated and more demanding from that endurance and periodization training perspective. So uh, the Olympic-level triathlete, we've had Simon Whitfield uh, talk in detail about his experiences uh, on the Primal Endurance course, and those videos are wonderful, catching up with him and finding out what he was all about. His methods were really precise and scientific and highly calibrated toward uh, recovery and balance. And I think the major sport athlete today is getting paid so much money and has so much demand to perform uh, almost year round in the case of like a tennis player or an NBA basketball player who's going uh, into the playoffs every year, LeBron James uh, and the, the guys on the Warriors playing over 100 games a year. They're playing regular season games and they're playing summer league and they're doing the same thing. And it possibly could be compromising their career duration as well as increasing their injury risk because they don't have a distinct aerobic base building period where they're just jogging and doing stretching and mobility and uh, cord and tubing work. So there's probably an overtraining pattern or a chronic pattern uh, applied to the athletes in the major sports, unfortunately, soccer players, anyone, uh, referees, if you're refereeing year-round. So the first thing I'd like to say is every athlete deserves a distinct off-season, and then they also deserve periods of time where they're focusing on um, other forms of training that are outside of their core competencies. So they're uh, doing less pickup basketball games and more work in the gym or in uh, just basic aerobic conditioning, jogging slowly, and then bringing that to uh, to the to the court when it's time to go into another phase of quote unquote training. That's just my personal opinion. So I think the primal endurance principles to answer the question apply to athletes in all sports that you know are um, uh, physical in nature. I don't know if the golfers need to go do much, but then again. These guys are uh, applying uh, a form of endurance because they're walking the course five or six days a week for four to five hours at a time, walking uh, five or six miles, and they do not want to have uh, fatigue enter into the picture in any way, shape, or form, muscular fatigue from the upper body, nor from their legs, because then their rhythm and timing will go off. So now we're seeing, even in the uh, sedate sport of golf, uh, highly trained and extremely fit specimens, Rory McIlroy, um, Jason Day, uh, Dustin Johnson. These guys are athletes. They're putting a lot of work in in the gym. They're getting a cross-training effect. They, Tiger Woods was known for um, doing these intense three-mile runs frequently, uh, uh, you know, many times a week, running supposedly, uh, if you believe the stories, uh, somewhere around 19-minute pace. So he's just cranking off six-minute miles as a component of his uh, – training regimen that extended for long hours into the day from hitting balls, lifting weights, doing the, uh, the road work, just like a, a military guy that he, um, he was enamored with. So uh, that's the good answer for everyone is these principles apply to whatever you're doing because we are talking about the intensity, the sprinting, the, the explosive workouts. And depending on your athletic goals, you might be doing more of that and less of uh, the, the road work, the over-distance work. And um, that's just something to think about. Whatever your goals are, we can uh, fit into uh, the paradigms that are presented here because this is just sensible, uh, common sense, uh, fitness uh, progress, balancing stress and rest, adhering to those big picture principles. 
And last question from Suzanne Nottage, 2010. I was second to last in my age group at Ironman Nice. I was 18 minutes before cutoff. The next day I could hardly walk, nor the day after that, partly due to the high sugar gels and drinks I'd consumed from dawn to nearly midnight. Ouch. That's a lot of stuff going down the pipe, man. Becoming primal aligned significantly contributed to reducing my Ironman time the following year by four hours. Can anyone out there top that? Oh my gosh, congratulations. She did a 1541 in Ironman Nice 2010, improved to 1142. How is it possible that a 5241 year old female can race an Ironman on 50 calories per hour and place third? Oh, and feel good the next day. Just the same as how I raced a half Ironman on 70 calories total last month and finished in the top 10. So this girl's going all the way from uh, a gel-consuming slowpoke to a badass elite winning prizes getting on the podium and not even requiring any additional food. So I'm um, sorry, this isn't a question. This is a success story. Might as well put that into the show once in a while, huh? Here she goes again, still writing. I'm 100% convinced that if I hadn't listened to your podcasts and followed the approaches described by you and your guests, I would not have finished third in my age group in the Ironman, nor would I have been ready to bring forward my Ironman by a month, nor negative split in the marathon. The biggest takeaway from the race is that it gets paid forward. Every time I've run a marathon or done an Ironman, someone I know has laced up and headed out the door to chase their dreams. So thank you for not only changing my life, but for indirectly changing theirs too. Suzanne Nottage, what a wonderful success story. Congratulations on those amazing performances and improvement, showing what's possible when you make the commitment. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Primal Endurance Podcast. Join us on our Facebook group, Primal Endurance. Send your questions in, info at primalendurance.com. Until then, have a great day. Thick. Alex got better, but his mother went quick. Moved in with the cousin, the cousin committed suicide Left him with nothing but ruined pride, something new inside Boys saying, Alex, you gotta fend for yourself He started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf Would have been left to do for someone less astute He would have been dead or destitute without a cent or restitution Started working, clerking for his late mother's landlord Trading sugar cane and rum and all the things he can't afford Scamming for every Book. He could get his hands on planning for the future. See him now as he stands on the bow of a ship heading for a new land. In New York, you can be a new man. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Bootcamp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made, delicious, paleo-approved meals for the entire week. 
paleocookingbootcamp.com. This is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the Bay Area. And now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen. Even if you're not a big foodie, even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes, just push the play button and Katie will take you through the cooking course. It's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month, and you will be dialed with your paleo meals. Just open up that refrigerator door. Imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items, dinner entrees, dessert treats even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing, and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out paleocookingbootcamp.com and enroll today. 